what was the funniest thing that happened to you this week? Like a real laugh out loud moment. Did you have any? Did you have any? Maybe it was just that, that sugar tax thing. Was that the first time you really laughed this week? I hope not. I hope not. Um, so day camp happens, as Victoria was telling you earlier. Day camp happens here and happens with all caps. It happens here uh, during the week. This is the, we just finished our first week. And um, I didn't get to witness the funniest thing that I heard about this week, but it was so funny that it made me laugh out loud. And every time I told someone else, it made me laugh out loud. And we'll see if it makes you laugh out loud. So maybe half of you have been in the men's restroom downstairs. That makes you laugh right away, I know. Um, maybe half of you have, maybe some of you guys haven't been. But the men's restroom down there is kind of uh, dungeon-esque. And uh, this, last, this last week, uh, you know, we have a lot of new day camp kids, and they're from kindergarten through eighth grade. So if they haven't been in the building before, they're still kind of feeling out, the, taking the lay of the land, still trying to figure out different rooms and stuff. Um, well, what, what day was it, Victoria? Maybe it was Monday. It was the first day. It was the first day. And there was a first grader? Second grader? Okay. So it's in the middle of the day, and some people were down in the fellowship hall, Victoria's there, another of our teen staff, Javon, he was down there, and they hear, help, 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 and they kind of looked around, who's yelling for help? It sounds like he's coming from the men's bathroom, and so Javon goes, and he kind of like pokes his head in the door, and he's like, can I help you? <laughs> Obviously, can I help you? And he looks, and this dear little second grader was, again, if you've been in the restroom downstairs, you know that there's a main door to exit and there's also a locked closet door. And he was pulling on the locked closet door trying to get out. And he thought he would never escape. <laughs> so, funniest thing that happened all week in my world. Um, just, just to segue off that a little bit, day camp is going phenomenally. Thank you so much for praying. Uh, I was, I was telling my family that on Wednesday, I got to share the gospel with these 102 or so kids. And it was one of those, there, there are certain times when the Lord just brings a quiet. And I was able to share the good news of Christ. And we, we, we leave it to the Spirit to do whatever work He's doing in those moments. But it was one of those moments where I walked away thinking, Lord, I trust you're moving there. Plant seeds that put down roots and bear fruit that lasts. And that's what we're praying for this whole summer. So we, we continue to cover your prayers, ask you to keep praying for us. Um, and we cry for help. We cry for help from the Lord to, to keep doing his work. So this morning I want to ask you, uh, I want to ask you to consider two things. Wisdom and foolishness. Wisdom and foolishness. Wisdom being having good sense, right? You take knowledge that you possess and you act correctly based on that knowledge. Wisdom being, I understand something, I know something, and now I'm going to act in accordance with what I know. Foolishness being, I have some knowledge 
that would point me in a certain direction, but I'm still not going to go there. I'm still not going to act in a way that agrees with what I know. That's foolishness. Two pretty simple definitions. The kid in the bathroom, if this Wednesday when we, when we gather back for day camp, if we found him yelling in the bathroom again, help, 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 we'd be like, all right, Jimmy, um, this is the door, remember? <laughs> the third time, he might be wondering about Jimmy a little bit, all right? Um, he has some knowledge now that can be applied in the right way. He's hopefully grown in wisdom to be able to open up that door and leave the bathroom. Would you call yourself wise? Would you call yourself wise? How would you know? Well, wise is such a philosophical term, Andy. I, I don't really know. Well, I just gave you a definition. Do you, do you act correctly with what you know? Maybe more to the point would be, would you call yourself a fool? Maybe that digs a little bit more. Would you call yourself a fool? Are there, are there times in your life where you, you know what you know, but you don't act according to what you know? Would you be a fool? And maybe you're inside, you're saying, well, as funny as the story about the bathroom and the kid is, uh, I, I can relate a little bit in terms of like life stuff. I feel stuck. I feel like I should easily be able to find the door and walk out the door, but I just feel stuck. And that makes me feel foolish. It makes me feel ashamed that I just can't figure life out like it seems like everybody else can. Like it seems maybe even my other family in Christ can. Why are things going so swimmingly for them? And I'm just stuck. Well, this morning we're continuing our Women of Faith series. Uh, Bill preached on Rahab two weeks ago and Ruth last week. And today we're going to be in Luke chapter 7, talking about a woman of the city. Luke chapter 7 is on page 864 in the Bible. It's right in front of you. If not, you can find it in your own Bible. It's the third gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke in the New Testament. Let me give you a little bit of background here because we're just kind of parachuting into this text and we'll parachute out of it next week. A little background. Uh, as, we're, as we're coming here to Luke chapter 7, people around Jesus, even the closest of people, were trying to figure out who he was, trying to get a fix on him. Was he just a teacher? Was he just a healer? The crowd saw that he seemed to be an excellent Jew. Yet at the same time, he flouted the law when it came to purity rites and keeping the Sabbath. So what's his deal? He hung out with sinners who everyone knew were sinners. Tax collectors, drunks, prostitutes. This is the crew that he spent his time with, ate his meals with. Yet at the same time, he agreed with John the Baptist, his cousin, that sinners should turn from their sin. So he was an odd paradox. 
hanging out with sinners, yet at the same time telling sinners what you're doing is not right. Who you are is not right. And people are wondering, is Jesus the wisest man we've ever heard? Or is he just kind of a fool that's going to flame out soon? Uh, Please pray with me. Lord, we are thankful this morning that um, we can count on your presence. That you're here with us. The, The omnipresent one is here with us. And so this is your word. I have my hands open, Lord, for your spirit to work through your word, through my words. Lord, will you give us hearts that are open to hear from you this morning, to bring conviction, encouragement, joy, sorrow. Lord, as you need to work in each of us, please do what your good will is. And please point us, Lord Jesus, to yourself. I also want to pray, Lord, for Jared and for Rita as they head off later on this week, Lord. We love them, and we pray that you would just set them up beautifully in Charlotte. I pray, Lord, as they look for a church down there, that you would transfer them there in a way where they can find a a body of Christ that is um, preaching the same gospel, loving them with the same gospel that's happening here at Edgewater. Thank you, Lord, for them. And we thank you, Lord, for you. In your name, amen. So this is the word on the street, according to Luke chapter 7. Jesus was in the area. He had been hanging out in the town of Capernaum, the city of Capernaum, and spending a lot of time in the little town of Nain. People were observing or they were hearing from each other what he was up to. He had been out on the plain preaching. He had been talking about blessing the poor, speaking woe and warning to the rich. He said radical things about loving your enemies, judging not lest you be judged, and forgiving one another. He was saying something that maybe ritualistic Jews could could never quite comprehend, that there would be some way that God would produce fruit in them that would last and would be good. That God himself would burst their people into life. He also said that if you did what he said, if you did what he said, it would be like building the house of your life on a rock rather than building it on sand. These are the things that Jesus was teaching out on the plain. But he wasn't just teaching, he was also healing. He had healed the servant of a centurion, not up close, not touching him and saying he was healed, but from afar. The centurion marveled, knowing that Jesus was a man of authority as he was and could command that his servant be healed. One of the local sons had died. And as the funeral pyre was coming out, the funeral board was coming out of the town, Jesus saw his mother, a widow, weeping over her dead son. And he went and he touched the funeral board. And the boy raised to life. They had all seen it or heard about it. 
Jesus was doing things. He was on the move. He was teaching. He was healing. And they were trying to figure it out. Even John, his cousin, who at this point was in prison, sends two of his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect another? John was the one who had prepared the way for Jesus. But when you're stuck in prison, maybe he had some certain expectations of the cousin that he was proclaiming that didn't quite seem to be happening. John had a reason to ask, should we be looking for someone else? No one seemed to be able to get a fix on who Jesus was. The interesting thing is, two groups did. But you wouldn't really expect who I'm about to tell you about. You had one group that said, yes, Jesus is God. Yes, we will be baptized Yes, we will follow him. Yes, that group, they were the tax collectors. And you had another group. They said, no, we refuse to follow John or Jesus. We refuse to be baptized. We just refuse to be any part of this. And they were the religious elite, the Pharisees. Two groups had a fix on Jesus, but these two groups were different than we would have supposed. Yet the crowds were confused. They saw John as an ascetic. John didn't drink wine. He didn't eat bread. Instead, he ate locusts and honey. He lived out in the wilderness. And then Jesus comes to town, and he seems to be preaching the same things or similar things to John, yet Jesus drinks and eats even with sinners. People start to call him a glutton, a drunk. Who is this Jesus? Well, as we get to Luke chapter 7, Jesus responds to an invitation to come to a Pharisee's house. His name was Simon. Simon the Pharisee. And so Jesus accepted the invitation. It seems that Simon had been asking him. And Jesus accepts on this particular day, this particular invitation. And he goes with Simon to his home. Typically, these kinds of gatherings were hosted by religious leaders after the service at the synagogue, kind of a post-church meal at the religious leader's house. I'm sure you're thinking what Jesus was thinking. What does this invitation entail? As Jesus walks into Simon's house, you can smell the oil lamps on the walls. You could smell the bread baking and the lamb roasting on the spit over the fire. There's a good crowd there at the table, all of them leaning on their left arms with their feet extended behind him. That's how they ate at these meals. Jesus took his place as well, leaned down on his left arm, 
And immediately, I'm sure, recognized that this was not a typical post-synagogue lunch. This was a bare-bones meal. No servants had welcomed them when they came in. Everyone sat around and looked at their feet as they waited on the food, and their feet still carried the grime of the day. Simon had really not gone to much trouble for this lunch. There was a crowd that came into Simon's house as well. They were allowed to come in. They, they weren't official guests, but the synagogue leaders would allow extras to come in and they would line the room. You would have the table in the middle with all the invited guests and then there would be a crowd that would come in and just kind of line the room and watch for what would happen. If they were religiously serious, which they probably were if they were coming to lunch at a Pharisee's house, they were listening, listening for what what might be taught them, what they could learn at this lunch. How will, how will the law perhaps be expressed in a new way today? Well, the word gets around the city that Jesus is at Simon's house. And a sinner, at least that's how she was known, a woman of the city, a sinner, hears that Jesus is at Simon's house. Was she promiscuous? Perhaps. Was she a prostitute? Maybe. The fact that she was known as a sinner seems to point us in that direction. And she enters the house. Can you see her discomfort already? Entering this house of religious people who have just left the synagogue where she probably was not herself. She was marginalized. She was an outcast. She was a sinner. Yet she comes into Simon's house and she's cradling this jar. She's cradling this jar and in her mind thinking, I've been wanting to see him. I have been wanting, I've been hearing so much about him. I've been wanting to see him. Now finally, he is near. He has come near. I I must see Jesus. And she cradles this alabaster jar with a, a long, slender neck sealed at the top so that in order to access the perfume, the neck would have to be broken. This perhaps tool of her trade would be used this day on a man named Jesus. This, this nard perhaps came from India it was pure nard. It was, it was special. And she cradled it like it meant everything in the world to her. It, it may have cost her a year's wages. It may have cost an ambitious suitor of hers a year's wages. And yet she cradled this alabaster jar. She falls down at Jesus' feet, behind him, between his dirty feet and the crowd looking on, and she begins to weep. And she unfurls her hair. And she begins to wipe Jesus' feet with her tears, 
with her hair. She breaks the alabaster jar and she begins to anoint Jesus' feet. This is the one she had longed to see. This is the one who her heart was telling her, love. And she had found him in the house of a Pharisee with feet still dirty and an alabaster jar to use for Jesus. She begins kissing his feet, her makeup running down her face as she's weeping, her hair mussed with the mud coming off of Jesus' feet, the dung of the streets onto her, and you have this smell emanate throughout the room of this beautiful perfume mixed with the reality that no one's feet were clean. And that putrid mix of beauty and ugliness in one place. The onlookers, the crowd around are saying, how could she? This is scandalous. How could she dare to come here? Does she not know who our host is? Does she not know who we are? And what is she doing to him? This woman of the city who we all know, what is she doing to him? Is this just a confirmation of everything we've already thought about him? He does eat with sinners, you know. Is she daring to proposition him in front of all of us? The watching continued. The murmuring went on. Where was Simon? Maybe he had stepped out. Maybe he was sitting there observing, wondering. We definitely know he was thinking. Because Simon, in his mind, says to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. Let me tell, tell you a little about Simon. Simon was a Pharisee. Pharisees, they had a unique way of looking at the law. They believed in the written tradition, the Torah, but the Pharisees also believed in the oral tradition. Basically, that meant that the written tradition was added to and massaged throughout the history of Israel by the Pharisees themselves. To what effect? To the effect that the weight of the law was lessened. The holiness of God was brought lower. Why would they do such a thing? Because when you're able to do legal gymnastics, you put certain hard-to-observe, difficult laws to the side, and you institute smaller laws that someone actually can agree with, someone can, actually can accomplish. So you have this lessening of God's law and this elevating of man's law. This was Simon. He was a Pharisee. Producing, believing in his own righteousness. And he's saying if this man were a prophet, he would know who is at his feet. 
Simon, I have something to say to you. Jesus finally speaks. Simon, I have something to say to you. Perhaps Simon is thinking, aha, finally. Maybe now I'll get a new profound nugget that I can massage the law with some more. Something that this, this prophet, this prophet will give me that I can share with the other Pharisees and who knows where this will lead. Simon, I have something to say to you. Say it, Jesus. He didn't say that. He said, say it, teacher. Simon, there were two debtors. Two debtors. There were two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. Two years of wages. You can hear the gasp of the crowd in the background as they're feeling the weight of that. Two years wages? I could never come under, out from under that burden. That sort of debt would be inescapable for me. The other, Simon, owed 50 denarii. Still significant amount, about two months, but not nearly 500 denarii. Neither could pay, Simon. Guess what the master did? Simon. He canceled the debt of them both. Tell me, Simon, I have a question for you now. Which will love him more? The 50 or the 500? Simon, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debts. And Jesus responds, Simon, you have answered rightly. You have answered rightly. Then Jesus, having been speaking to Simon, finally turns to the woman at his feet. And he begins, he begins speaking to her. I'm, I'm sorry. He begins speaking to Simon even as he's looking at the woman. Do you see this woman, Simon? When I came in, you gave me no water for my feet. Yet since I have arrived, she has not stopped wiping my feet with her tears. When I arrived, you gave me no kiss, no welcome. Yet she has not stopped kissing my feet. You gave me no simple oil for my face. Yet Simon, she has anointed my feet with her perfume. Simon, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For so she has loved much. 
But he who is forgiven loves little. Your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Stunned into silence, the crowd begins to murmur again. Who is this? Who is this that even forgives sins? Who is this Jesus who would bend to bless us? Who is this Jesus that would look at an outcast? One who would seem beyond saving and yet give her, give me forgiveness. There's so much that could be said about this story. But I just want to give you three implications and one direct question. The first implication is this. Jesus receives sinners, but is revolting to the self-righteous. Jesus received the invitation of Simon, but he did not recoil from the woman. Yet Simon revealed his self-righteousness and how he responded to her. Jesus receives sinners, but is revolting to the self-righteous. Implication number two. Jesus radically forgives. Radically forgives and saves sin-sick souls. He radically forgives and saves sin-sick souls. Did you, did you hear the parable that he spoke? This sin is a par- sin is debt. And God is the master. And there is a debt that we cannot repay. There is a debt that is too large for us to come out from under. Yet God has made a way for our debt to be canceled. It's like your mortgage company, if you have one, a mortgage and a mortgage company, calling you one day and saying, guess what? We know you're super far behind in your payments. We know you're probably fearing right now that your house is going to be repossessed. Someone has stepped in and paid for your home. You're free. 
Jesus takes a woman who should have no place in his presence. Yet, she comes to him. Showing us that there is, there is no pile of sins, there is no debt too great that God's grace cannot get up underneath it and take care of it all. There is nothing in your past, there is no pattern of behavior right now that Jesus does not, number one, know about. And number two, is not calling you to say it can be forgiven too. Jesus receives sinners, but is revolting to the self-righteous. Jesus radically forgives and saves sick souls. Number three, Jesus restores and receives worship. Who had this dear woman been worshiping? She'd been worshiping survival. She had perhaps been worshiping love. Perhaps she'd been worshiping money. She'd had the means to buy that alabaster flask. Who had she been worshiping that had brought her into this place where she became known as a woman of the city, a sinner? But what we, what we need to see here is that the forgiveness of Jesus accomplishes much within the heart of a person. Yes, it relieves them of debt, but it establishes a relationship of worship that restores the person. She, at Jesus' feet, was at the very place she always needed to be. She was in the right position, worshiping God. Jesus' forgiveness brought her near to him and changed her life into one of worship rather than her work. Here's the one direct question I want to ask you. Are you a fool or are you wise? In the light of who Jesus is and who we, who we have just seen him to be, are you a fool or are you wise? Because if Jesus receives sinners, yet he's reviled by the self-righteous, the wise person says, I will admit my sin and I will humble myself and say, I, I cannot make myself righteous. That would be foolish. I desire to be wise. If Jesus restores, I'm sorry, if Jesus radically forgives and saves sick souls, the fool says, well, no, you know what? I'm just going to manage my sin. I think I can handle it myself. You know, there's some different ways that we handle sin. Some of us just ignore it. We chalk our guilt up to a complex, maybe given to us by our parents. Maybe that has evolved into us. Something that is somehow beneficial to society, even though guilt caused so many, causes so many neuroses. 
You can't even count them hardly. Guilt is real because there's a God who is real and He is really holy. So when we walk away from God, we are taking ourselves away from the position we should be in and placing ourselves in that position, worshiping Him, worshiping us instead of Him. So some people ignore sin. Some people bury sin. I know I'm a sinner, but if I can just forget about it, if I can just keep a good face on, sure, I'm having a good day, good week. I did laugh a lot this week. Read my Bible on Tuesday. When the sin that you're struggling with, that's really the theme of your life, it seems. But we seek to bury it Hide it. Manage it. Some people embrace their sin. Well, this is how I was made. So I'm just going to embrace everything about me, even if the Bible would say it's a sin or that I'm sinful. I'm just going to embrace who I am. Just do me. And some of us grace sin. Some of us say, praise Jesus, saved by grace through faith, put my trust in Him, believed in Him. Let me do whatever I want now. Grace, grace, God's grace has covered it all. So we actually never reckon with our sin. We manage it with some false understanding of grace, some false understanding of of the King of grace who says, you can go in peace, but we must deal with sin. And so the fool tries to manage his grace while the wise brings her sin to Jesus. She could have used that perfume on herself, do you see? She could have made herself more attractive to the crowd, to Simon, to Jesus. She could have dolled herself up a little bit. But no, she knew that wasn't working. It never had. It never would. And she came instead to worship Him. In all of her sin, all of her mess, she came shamelessly to worship the one who she had been longing for. The fool doubts that he's actually forgiven and he lives in the shame of perpetual debt to God. Yes, I'm speaking to us Christians. Brothers and sisters, do you believe that you're actually forgiven? That you have a place at Jesus' feet? That you've been turned in your identity from sinner to saint. That He has accomplished that change in you. 
Or do you continue to wallow in shame, continue to wallow about Jesus? I hope I performed well enough for you today. Jesus came shamelessly to shame the shameful and turn them into sons and daughters of God. Jesus did not ignore her sin. Instead, he makes the incredible pronouncement that greater debt actually equals greater forgiveness. And tell me, what is greater forgiveness equal? Greater what? Greater love. Greater love. So I want to lay this paradox out for you. See, our hearts love to take our past and make us wallow in shame. But do you see what Jesus did right here? He said, yes, she has a past. Because she does, she has a greater capacity for forgiveness and a greater capacity for love. So I would plead with us, please do not any longer live in the shame of your past. May the shame of your past be a badge of love for your Savior. May the shame of your past produce in us a glorious wonderment at the forgiveness of a God who who does not need to forgive us. Our debt is all to him. Yet has, in his beautiful majesty, allowed for a past that could then produce great forgiveness and love. Your shame is material for love. Let's not walk as fools when it comes to whether or not we're actually forgiven. Because we remember, the wise remember that Jesus radically forgives and saves sick souls. The fool plays his faith close to the vest and scoffs at shameless displays of adoration. You know, we talked about being stuck earlier. And I, I do wonder how many of us would say, yes, I have trusted in Christ through faith. Yes, he is my king. Yes, I love to worship him. Yes, yes, yes. You're, you're not doubting whether or not you actually know the Lord. You're not doubting whether or not you're going to go to heaven. You're not doubting whether or not your sins are forgiven. But there is this thing in the back of your mind that always seems to come forward and you're wondering, why don't I love him more? Why does, why does my faith seem so bland? Why does it seem that my love has grown cold? Is that a place where I'm going to be stuck perpetually? until I see him face to face? If we look at what Jesus has told this woman, we 
we need to come to a place where we say, there is a very real element of my love for Christ that is linked that is linked to my understanding and sorrow over my sin. So if you're saying, I'm not, I'm not feeling it right now. The love of God is not welling up real, real deeply within me. Ask, I want to just ask you this question. How are you, are you just managing your sin right now? Are you just managing your sin and saying, I can handle it. Jesus wouldn't want this mess anyway. The, the story beautifully illustrates where to take sin. And what happens when we take sin to the person we're supposed to take it to. When we take our sin to Jesus, he does not say, get out of here, you filthy. He does not say, I can't believe you stumbled again. Remember, I saved you out of that. No, he does not say that. He says, your sins are forgiven. And you begin to worship because you do not deserve to have your sins forgiven. You begin to worship because you realize that debt you could never pay. You begin to worship because he has said, I have given you myself. I have paid the full penalty for your sin on the cross and you're forgiven. Go in peace. Love me. Worship me. So if your heart is lulling Ask the simple question, God, show me my sin again. The wise sacrificially, shamelessly adore Jesus. The fool scoffs at shameless, radical displays of worship. The wise shamelessly sacrificially adore Jesus. That's partly what Donnie and Vali did this morning. They stood in front of you, some of you they love. A lot of us they love. A lot of more of us they've loved for a longer time. Some of us have no idea who you are yet. Yet they stood up here and they did a, a weird thing. When you analyze it from like a worldly perspective, like if the world would walk in and they say, there, there's an adult woman and her soon-to-be young adult daughter getting dunked in water. Why? Baptism is a beautiful display of worship. Jesus, we're yours. We're yours. There's no scoffing at that. The wise sacrificially and shamelessly adore Jesus. I would ask you this. How is that working out in your life right now? See, a lot of us, we get into, we get into patterns where we say, you know, this is kind of how my Christian life goes. Yet the Holy Spirit is looking to reawaken a love for Christ. Maybe you just need to ask that question. Show me your, show me my sin again, Jesus. Maybe he's saying, you know, I want you to sing more loudly. <laughs> I want you to pray more fervently. 
I want you to give me that half an hour, that hour of your day. I want you to give me your commute. Instead of putting on ESPN radio, sit in silence and listen to me. I want you to that person in your office that you've been considering just asking a simple question to, what do you think about Jesus? Yet you've been cowering in the background. The Spirit is saying, I just want you to ask them. Let's go on a little adventure today. Go and ask her. Go and ask him. How is he asking you to break out of the mold you've been in and shamelessly and sacrificially adore him? I'm going to finish with this. So, oftentimes, you know, part of the reason I said there's so much to say about this, and you probably said, yeah, you just said a lot, is that um, this is this is a, an incredible, incredibly simple story of the grace of God to sinners. That God would forgive the unforgivable. But I want to show you something here really quick. If you, if you have your Bibles open, something really quick that will just conclude things here. This is in Luke chapter 7. This is right before, right before, this story. Luke chapter 7, verse 29. John has just sent his messengers. They're asking Jesus, are you the one? Or should we expect something else? Someone else. And Jesus responds at the end of verse 28, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And then there are parentheses in your Bible because this is an editorial comment from Luke. Okay, And Luke writes, when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too. They declared God just. An interesting statement there. The tax collectors, the, the prime time sinners in their culture, collectively declared God just. They basically said, God, you're right. Okay? That's what that means. God, you are right. Because... It says, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. That's what I told you about before. These two groups that we wouldn't expect finally got a fix on Jesus. Verse 31. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? This is Jesus now speaking. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another picture kids sitting in the marketplace playing and they're calling one another we played the flute for you and you did not dance we sang a dirge and you did not weep they're saying that first line about john we were all joyous hey we're israelites the kingdom of god is coming and john wasn't about to dance he was saying turn from your sins the kingdom of god is coming And then they started weeping. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. Speaking about Jesus. We then sorrowed and we expected someone else to kind of dwell in our sorrow. Yet Jesus steps in and he's eating with sinners. Drinking wine, eating bread. Neither of these men did what the crowds expected. But look at verse 33. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine and you say he has a demon. Jesus says, The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, 
a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Verse 35, Yet wisdom, wisdom is justified by all her children. Wisdom is proven right by all her children. Which if you didn't have that little paragraph break right there, the narrative in the Greek naturally carries on right into the next verse. Into the woman of the city. You see, the woman of the city, by the grace of God, became a daughter of the wise. She became a wise woman. Why was she wise? Because she knew who Jesus was. She knew that she was a sinner. She needed his forgiveness. She knew that he would always accept when she came to him. And she did. She was a child of the wise and showed that God in his wisdom is right. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we would ask, oh wise one, that you would make us wise. That we'd be people that know where we belong at your feet. That we would come with our sin and trust you for forgiveness. Lord, we are thankful. Thankful for you. I pray this in your name. Amen.